It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Here's your host. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, healthcare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to geneseehealthplan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and we got a good one today. It's packed full of, uh, I would just have to say it's packed full of stars, uh, starting with um, this uh, first interview coming up in, oh, a few minutes, is... Uh, with the um, with Carl Sagan's widow, Andrean, who worked with him on the Cosmos TV series and the Cosmos book. Well, the series and the book are back, written by Andrean, and uh, we're going to talk about Cosmos then and now. We're going to talk about Carl Sagan. We're going to talk about science, science denial, science communications, and a lot more with Andrean coming up in just a little bit. And then the uh, iconic radio personality who brought America the Beatles in uh, is back on his on the station where he started WABC in New York now it, it's online and there's a, a phone app for it and so on but he's going to be uh, starting this month he's back on the air with Saturday Night Rock and Roll Party and uh, he's playing 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, adding his encyclopedia of factoids. Um, his name is uh, Brucey Morrow, or Cousin Brucey, as he's known on the air. And he's going to be joining us during the uh, second hour of our three-hour tour. And then a quirky, uh, a quirky little movie that was made uh, back in the 1980s about a New York real estate hustler with grand political ambitions of taking over a country um, was actually written and produced by creative uh, multi-talents Neil Cohen and Zach Norman. Zach Norman, you might, um, if you don't know his name, you certainly know his face from Romancing the Stone, Cadillac Man, Ragtime, Daughters of the Darkness, and uh, Neil Cohen, who um, has written for uh, the TV series 24, The Equalizer, Man and Machine, um, a tremendous amount of uh, credentials and some interesting uh, talent in the uh, 
in the movie. I saw the movie uh, last week. The movie that uh, that they're reviving is uh, called Chief Zabu, and it's a comedy satire and um, a little little unusual. Um, it's uh, it's it's on some streaming networks, and and we'll talk about that and more with Zach Norman and Neil Cohen coming up during the third half of our three-hour tour. Um, this conversation coming up in a minute or or two is um, well, it's actually coming up in about five minutes. Is uh, a real interesting one for me because. Um, Carl Sagan was really the world's spokesman for science and for scientific investigation and discovery. And, and I just I remember him so uh, profoundly that it was a real honor and privilege to talk with his wife, which I got a chance to do. But we have a few minutes before that interview starts, and I always like to squeeze in a little local music. Here's the Retro Rockets with uh, Yours Truly on drums um, and uh, some some great local talent. And, and we're going to squeeze this song in. I thought this song was appropriate because we have so many stars on the show today. <laughs> Which one is mine? One must be right for 
Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is the Tom Sumner Program. It was uh, 40 years ago that Carl Sagan and his wife, Andrian, uh, co-wrote what would become the most iconic science-based television series in history and its companion, one of the top-selling science books of all time, Cosmos. Well, now Andrian is... Uh, Carrying the torch forward with a long-awaited sequel to the book Cosmos with Cosmos Possible Worlds, published by National Geographic. It is the companion to the third season of Cosmos, which premiered on National Geographic in March, but is uh, also airing on Fox this month, uh, beginning this month. And um, Andrea joins me by phone. Ann, am I still saying your uh, last name right? You're doing it beautifully, Tom. It's so good to be with you and to be with your audience in Flint. Well, welcome to the uh, welcome to the show. And I, I I just have to ask, as a way to get started, how is doing the Cosmos series and this new Cosmos book? Um, and and I should mention that Anne is a Peabody and Emmy Award winning writer producer and director many times over um but how is it different doing this project now as opposed to 40 years ago that's a great question i uh i have to say that i feel that the values of science which were much more a part of the fabric of our society 40 years ago science is now under siege and uh, there's a, you know, there's a feeling of mistrust and disregard for science. We can see it in the suffering of this pandemic, but also in the abandonment of a sense of the future that Cosmos, that, that cosmos celebrated, that science makes possible. And so... This new season, uh, Brandon Braga, my collaborator and I, we wanted to create a vision of a possible future that is worth working for. We all know how, you know, how dangerous and catastrophic the effects of climate change have become, the fires, the floods, the droughts. And so we wanted to, instead of telling everybody, how bad it is because I think we all really know it. Uh, we wanted to envision the redemptive power of science. Science's power to help us meet this challenge and rescue the future for our children and our grandchildren. I, I can't help asking, and, and I don't want to dwell on the past too much, but, you know, as you were talking about, we all know how bad it is, and yet there are people who deny climate change. 
Um, would people have been so distrusting and, and so doubting if Carl Sagan had said there was climate change? Oh. What a deep and haunting question that is for me personally. Because knowing Carl, working with him for 20 years, building a family with him, you know, his integrity, his goodness was so much more outstanding for those of us who really knew him. And, you know, there have been so many times, and maybe this is just the voice of a, a widow or the voice of someone whose bias is very obvious. But there's a part of me that feels that if Carl were alive and well, we would have had greater protection against the horrendous failure that we are living through now. I know I know it because he was the kind of person who, who couldn't lie he had to be truthful. He was kind, but he was always truthful. And I just feel that his stature was so much greater than anyone we, any representative of science we have now, because he could connect with everyone. And because he was such a citizen, you know, he used to go to the uh, naturalization ceremonies. <laughs> no one knew about this. There was no, there was no, you know, like public relations person spreading the word. He would, he would, the night before school began in September, he would regularly talk to the the teachers of our county to inspire them with the with the sacred task of what they were doing. He would go to kindergartens and first grades to just light that spark in the minds of children. You know, he really was a citizen scientist and, um, and believed in democracy, had those values. And I feel that, you know, if he had lived and he was well, he would be a force for good. I know he would. More about Carl Sagan, Cosmos, and more with Peabody and Emmy Award-winning writer, producer, and director Andrean. Straight ahead. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. 
Brought to you by the America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Your calls matter. Join me and Andrea weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern to talk about whatever you want to talk about. The Tom Sumner Program has open phone lines Monday through Friday to hear from you. How's 2020 working out for you so far? How about those damn roads? Call in live at 810-339-8255. It's all about you. We'll be streaming live at TomSumnerProgram.com and simulcast on WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. Foil hats are optional. You thought you had every Elvis record made, but wait, Elvis sings again, this time from heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven. Yes, hear Elvis from Graceland in the Sky, soul-stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning, Pearly Gate Rock, all dug up, lying in the chapel, and 11 others. This record also includes a special Elvis message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Elvis Presley. Order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative casket keychain. Open it up. Yes, the king inside. A must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today. To order your Elvis from Heaven, send $9.95 in check or money order to Elvis from Heaven, P.O. Box 714, Cleo, Michigan, 44487. Or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use Master Charge or Visa, Canadian residence, add $3. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology. Engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about Carl Sagan, Cosmos, and more with Peabody and Emmy Award winning writer, producer, and director Andrean. I was trying to imagine if I could get through a conversation with you without mentioning his many appearances on the on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and several other talk shows, and that that deep resonating um, voice that so many people mimicked um, with with the phrase "billions and billions." And then I saw, as I was reading through some of the material about the book, that that uh, you and Carl actually wrote a book called Billions and Billions. Yes, we did. This was, it was really remarkable. Uh, Carl underwent three 
bone marrow transplants during the last two years of his life and his fight for his life. Mm. And during that time, he wrote The Demon Haunted World and Billions and Billions. And after he died, his, his doctor said to me, you know, I've never known anyone who could actually finish reading a book during a bone marrow transplant. And Carl wrote two great ones. And that was just a that was just another metric of of his remarkable really off scale qualities. Well, and we really don't uh, we really if I just may add one thing. Yeah, go ahead. If I, I'm sorry Please. But if I may add one thing, he and Johnny Carson had such a beautiful friendship, and it really touched me that after Carl died, I heard from a science teacher uh, who told me that he had a dream that every single student couldn't graduate high school unless they once peered through a telescope. And Johnny Carson sent 300 celestron telescopes to the public schools of this teacher's state. And he wanted it done anonymously, but there was just a little gold plaque that said, <laughs> from a friend of Carl. Oh, man. <laughs> now, now you're making me tear up a little bit there, Anne. Um, <laughs> but but let me, um, was one last question about Carl, and then we'll, we'll move forward. Was he pretty good-humored about the ribbing and the impressions and... He, you know, the, one of the things that we loved to do most together was to really laugh. And I, you know, for me to make Carl just burst out laughing was one of the greatest joys of my life. And I could never make him laugh louder than when I was making fun of him. And uh, he was very good humored. I mean, he. there were times when he was hurt by... Uh, some of the, you know, unkindness on the part of his, you know, of his peers, the scientific community really didn't think that science, at that time, that science really belonged to all of us, as Carl thought. And so he got a lot of abuse from them, and that really hurt. But never, when people were making fun of him, he loved that. And uh, he had the best laugh of anyone. Now, I can't think of anybody in this last 40 years that has been a, as good a public spokesperson for science and, and scientific um, search and discovery um, un until maybe Neil deGrasse Tyson, who, of course, uh, hosts the, the new version of Cosmos, um, why does it 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 seem like it's it's so hard to um, translate science to regular people the way that Carl did so effortlessly? You know, I don't know why it is. I think it's because Carl grew up in a working class family that lived paycheck to paycheck. Didn't know any scientists, and he kind you know he he worked so hard to learn everything he could. And then he was a student at the University of Chicago, undergraduate, and for his two PhDs in physics and astrophysics and astronomy. And I think it was because the curriculum at the University of Chicago insisted that even if you wanted to be an astrophysicist, 
you had to read the sacred books of our ancestors. You had to know them deeply. You had to read great literature, whether you liked it or not. Well, of course, Carl loved it. And so he was able to develop not only his rigorous scientific mind, but also the soaring imaginative mind that comes from reading great literature. He respected, you know, he had a kind of a deep regard for the, the, the work of our ancestors. And he could tell you, he was a person, you know, somebody who, who could, in 1963, actually, you know, uh, put forth a thesis that there could be life in the cloud tops of Venus, something that, you know, everybody ridiculed at the time. Well, of course, last week, phosphines were discovered in the high cloud, cloud tops of <laughs> Venus. And so his scientific speculations were beautifully aimed. His work on the planets, on, tragically, the runaway greenhouse effect, on Venus and its implications for Earth, all of those things were absolutely rigorous, airtight. He was never, he never fudged anything. And yet, um, you know, I think it was his Brooklyn childhood and his love for his parents who really had a hard scrabble existence that rooted him in, uh, you know, in the kind of universal experience on earth and i think that's what made him so special is that he was um, you know he, he really he was his his consciousness was so complete in terms of free of bias free of chauvinism and simply interested in in terms of facts and great poetry of of, of literature so I don't know. I don't know how you make another Carl. I just don't know. I think he was a product of that period in many ways. But still, you know, he was he transcended the blindness uh, of that time. And I just, uh, I don't know how you make a Carl because he was inside and outside the person who he presented to the public, unlike so many famous people. And, um, you know, I, forgive me for just drooling on about this, but I could talk forever about his extraordinary qualities. Um, he was really, you know, um, he was a complete human being. And um, just uh, uh, for the record, your your audio is fading in and out a little bit. If anybody's uh, monitoring, maybe they can help with that. Um, okay. But Is this better? I, I, we'll see. Um, and uh, I want to okay, turn the I, I want to turn the attention to you now. What came first for Andrean, um, the uh, science or writing? Writing. I uh, published a novel, uh, which I wrote really before Carl and I were together. And, but I became interested in science. I was the kind of person who couldn't do the math and who was intimidated by science. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, so I was the person who was just like, uh, you know, I was told I was ineducable by a physics teacher, which really hurt. 
But um, I became interested in science because of the pre-Socratic philosophers of ancient Greece. And these were people who actually worked, rolled up their sleeves. They were not aristocrats. They did not own slaves. They were the kind of people who invented the experimental method. And that fascinated me because, you know, in a world completely mystified by nature, these were the first human beings that only know who said, let's not explain the thunder, you know, because um, the gods are angry. Let's try to understand um, the natural cause. And this inspired me tremendously because it's like the only way out of a circular trap. You know, if you say, well, that's because, you know, it's because the gods are angry. It's because the gods are happy. You don't ever find out what is the cause of things. And they began, they invented science. And I fell in love with them. And that coincided um, with my first encounters with Carl. And... uh, and so I guess the literature came first because I was not a good science student, but I had the greatest tutorial from a, for 20 years from, from a person for whom no question was silly, who honored every question with a thoughtful, precise, and understandable answer. And that inspired me to fall in love with science. In the process of, of writing um, Cosmos, the TV show, and, and now this companion book, Cosmos, Possible Worlds, um, how much of the material is proven fact and how much of it is informed speculation? That's a great question. You know, that's a really good question. I, I haven't quantified what the ratio is. But I, uh, I believe that there's nothing in the book which violates the laws of science, except for these voyages that we take to the beginning of time, to the beginning of life, which are absolutely firmly based on what we know scientifically. But my, my goal in creating this book was to weave what we know, a comprehensive view of really what we know about nature with aspects of my personal life, my life with Carl, and, uh, and most of all, to tell thrilling stories about some of the people of whom you've never heard before, but who contributed so much to our understanding of nature, and and also to create a vision of the future that's worthy of our children and our grandchildren, worth fighting for right now. And so, possible worlds, you know, it works on many different levels, in my view. It's the possible worlds of the exoplanets, the planets that circle other suns that we've only recently discovered in this most recent generation, but also the possible worlds that are personally possible if you are fortunate enough to be part of a great love, as well as the possible world that this could become if we get our act together. 
So there's a lot of science. But I, you know, I speak as someone who's, who's bored and terrified in science classes. There's a lot of science. You, at the end of the book, you are a scientifically literate person. But I hope it's painless. I hope <laughs> that it comes to you in the form of story that you can relate to. And I mean, there are half a dozen heroes in this book that I really can't wait for your audience to meet because, because I pick them not just because of uh, the science that they made possible, but because of the drama and the passion and the, even, even the suffering of their life stories as, as inspirations for all of us to step up. Well, as as you mentioned, you weren't a science kid. I wasn't a science kid. Is is one of the problems with people trying to communicate um, scientific discovery and scientific exploration that they talk over our heads? Absolutely, and it's much better now. I think that you know, scientists, many scientists realize that they have to be able to communicate and. I'm very proud of the fact that uh, here in Ithaca, New York, where I live, I had a tiny role in, in moving Cornell University to make it possible for science majors to minor in communication. Because, as Carl often said, we live in a society that is completely dependent on science and high technology. And yet you can't aspire to become a democracy as we hope to at some point if most of the people cannot be informed decision makers. And that's the reason that we did the first Cosmos and the reason that I've done two seasons since and written this book is that this, these, these insights that come from science were paid for by you and me with our tax dollars, virtually all of them. And yet, you know, the idea that citizens of a putative democracy, of an aspiring democracy, know nothing about them so that they can be lied to relentlessly about global climate change, about the pandemic, that has taken so many from us is outrageous and anti-democratic. And, uh, you know, I just feel that all of us have to do whatever we can to change this situation because it is, it is catastrophic. It already has been. But what we've been through this last year, these last four years, it will get worse. The floods the fires, the droughts, the diseases, they will all get worse. And actual, the actual drama of climate change, which is unfolding at the poles, and, and made completely, you know, all of these climate scientists, including Carl, who did his PhD thesis on Venus and coined the phrase runaway greenhouse effect, he was the first person to understand what was going on on Venus. Well, once he understood that, he couldn't help but look to his own planet and see what the implications of all the carbon dioxide 
and methane that we are putting into the atmosphere. You know, it's, it, this is critical. And so, uh, you know, the scientist who takes public money and makes no attempt to, to, to connect with the public about what she or he is doing, I think, is not being a good citizen. You know, the question of uh, life on other planets has uh, persisted in the uh, shadow of space exploration since uh, uh, the, the first uh, rockets went into space. Um, and, and it wasn't very long before his uh, death that Stephen Hawking said, if uh, life exists out there and it comes here, that would not be a good thing. Yet a lot of your writing and speculation... Uh, in in cosmos points to uh, a a much more positive kind of future um is that a matter of faith or is that a matter of science well that's a fair question and maybe part of it is just maybe all of it is projection you know because we tend to when we depict the extraterrestrials in popular culture you know, they want us for lunch, but <laughs> right. that doesn't make any scientific sense to me. Because the fact is, is that interstellar uh, travel is very expensive. And, um, you know, the distances between the stars are so, so formidable, so vast, that the idea of, yeah, you you figured out how to do interstellar travel, but you haven't figured out how to get lunch. That doesn't really, that seems very <laughs> unlikely. It's not exactly fast food. Fun. No, it's that, you know, is that we are projecting because of the way we treat the other life forms on this planet. We don't have a very good record, you know. And so for me, the extraterrestrials are beautiful until proven ugly because um, it seems to me that if you are an actual citizen of the cosmos, meaning that you have traveled from star to star and perhaps even galaxy to galaxy, you must have, you must have survived your technological adolescence. And that's what we're struggling with now. We are... You know, we've only been doing science for 400 years. That's nothing. In a systematic way, that is nothing, really. And it's a blink of an eye on the cosmic calendar uh, in a universe that's 13.8 billion years old. And so it seems to me that, you know, Stephen Hawking, I, I revere his memory. He was a genius without question. And yet, I feel that that was a rare failure of his imagination um, because while our first contact with each other has been a story of torture, brutality, that's because um, we're still very young and very short-sighted and very ignorant as a species. And we are just awakening to the cosmos and to the potential it has. And it seems to me, you know, I don't, I was a mess when I was an adolescent. I don't actually know a single person who wasn't. 
that's us right now in terms of our civilization, and that's what gives me hope because, you know, I the adolescents I knew have grown and matured into, for the most part, into decent human beings. And I think our civilization can do the same, but we don't have any time to waste. And you are an absolute delight to talk to, and I can't believe how fast the time has gone. We're literally out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Obviously, uh, the book Cosmos, uh, Possible Worlds, a companion piece to the Cosmos television series on National Geographic and now on Fox. Um, is is a great place to start. But, uh, Anne, do you have a, a website that you would like to direct people to to keep track of uh, what's happening with, with your work and, and all the related projects? Oh, thank you so much for asking, Tom. That's so kind of you. Yes. Um, first of all, on Instagram, you can go to Drianism or Saganism. And uh, on on. Uh, Online, you can go to carlsagan.com, and uh, that's that's really about it. But I, I really hope that your listeners will be will be moved to, to read the book because, um, you know, it really, I, I gave it everything I had. <laughs> well, Anne, thank you so much for spending this time with me this morning, and best of luck. Oh, it was a joy for me, too, Tom. And um, I really appreciate the depth of your questions and your great kindness. (laughs) All right. Take care. That was uh, Andrea. She is uh, the uh, she was married to Carl Sagan when they produced and and wrote the uh, um, series Cosmos. Cosmos is back again. And the uh, new book from National Geographic and Anne Drayen is Cosmos, Possible World. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Old-fashioned radio For a new generation TomSumnerProgram.com Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling author photographers and writers from National Geographic as well as artists, musicians, candidates and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the
the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. There are many shows on the air which are basically interview shows, and they start out in a very austere setting. Uh, there's the interviewer, he sits behind a desk, and in the background somewhere, some figure in the news sits. He's later in the show blinded by a spotlight. <laughs> I'd like to present one of these shows. They start off very dramatically, something like this. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Wallace, Nightline. 
Our guest in the studio tonight is Dr. Warner von Warner, one of the many German missile scientists involved in our American missile program. Dr. von Warner, I suppose the question most often asked you, you were involved in the German missile program, you're now involved in our missile program. Was the fact that you were involved in the German missile program a matter of political conviction, or was this political expediency on your part? <laughs> oh boy, that one, huh? Actually, I didn't, I didn't have that much to do with it, to tell you the truth. Um, <laughs> this is back around 1940. I was working at a beer garden in Stuttgart. <laughs> and like on Friday night, you know, the waitresses and the waiters, we'd go to one of the girls' pads, you know, and <laughs> order some pizzas and some schnapps and get half-gassed, you know. <laughs> and I used to fool around with these inventions, you know, and I'd take this tin can and put a firecracker underneath it, and I like the firecracker, and the thing go four or five feet up in the air, you know. And everybody say, what the hell was that? Or what a nut that Warner is. Somebody want to get Warner's hat. You know, something like that. Except there's one party. The little guy walks over. He's got a little mustache. And a... <laughs> Piece of hair falling on his eyes. He says, hey, that, uh, that was interesting what you did with a, with a tin can there. <laughs> But, uh, but uh, what causes that? Eh? I said, well, see, that's, um, for every action, there's a reaction, you see. And the, the force of the firecracker is it's, see, it's, first of all, it starts toward the floor. But the top of your can, see, it's, every time I do it, it jumps forward. He says, what, uh, what do you call that thing there? I said, that's, uh, that's a Arcot. It's named after my landlord, Irving Arcot. <laughs> See, I was, I was about three months behind in the end, you know, and comes a knock at the door, and he says, look, Warner, you know, you gotta knock off with the firecrackers in the middle of the night, you know, because the neighbors are complaining, and don't hand me the Madame Curie bit, you know what I mean? <laughs> what her landlord wanted to do about her rent, that's his business, I want my rent, I said, look, I'm working on an invention. If it works out, I'll name it after you. He says, you're going to call it an Irving? <laughs> so no, I'm going to call it a rocket. So anyway, the guy at the party, little mustache, piece of hair falling in his eyes. He says, that would make a terrific weapon, you know that? <laughs> I said, well, you'd have to get out on top of the guy. <laughs> hit him in the face or something like that with, with a tin can to really hurt him. I think your big problem is going to be getting that close to the guy, you know? He says, no, no, what if, what if we took a hundred firecrackers and a great big tin can, see? I said, well, we saw of that, but your problem there is, see, by the time you light the fuse on the last firecracker... <laughs> He said, look, the, the, reason, the reason I'm asking all this, I'm headed to German people. I said, oh. 
it's just a, you know, congratulations. I, you know. <laughs> I hadn't seen a paper in a couple of days, so I took a verse. <laughs> he says, would you like to be involved in our missile program? You know. I said, well, you know, I got a pretty good thing going at the, at the beer garden. You know. He says, look. <laughs> he says, it's a civil service job. <laughs> Three fifty a month. When you're fifty-five, you go down to Baden Baden and forget the whole scene. <laughs> so anyway, all they want me to do, I sign these requisitions. Liquid oxygen, I don't know what it is. I'm signing Warner von Warner, and every month three fifty. There it is, like clockwork. <laughs> anyway, make a long story short, we lose the war. And the Americans come to me, you know, and I've been getting offers from the Russians and all that, and they say, look, Warner, you know, we've seen your name on some of the requisitions, and uh, how'd you like to be involved in the American missile program, you know? I said, look, actually, I didn't have that much to do with it, you see. I mean, I was at this party in Stuttgart, see? <laughs> they said, ne never mind, never mind, we need a name. No, we so anyway, I, I, I took the job, and uh, there it is, four fifty a month, when I'm 55, I go down to Fort Lauderdale, and <laughs> it's a pretty good deal. Well, uh, Dr. Von Warner, our time is running out on us. Uh, we have now put a man in space. The Russians, some two or three weeks before that, had put a man in space. Was this the eventual plan of the German missile program to put a man in space? Oh, we, we put a man in space. Oh, sure, back in uh, 1940. My brother-in-law, Herman, I put him on. <laughs> Well, now, that's amazing because, of course, the, the big problem we found uh, putting a man in space was the problem of reentry. And apparently in 1940, you had already solved that problem. Well, what problem is this you're talking about? <laughs> well, Dr. Von Warner, we want to thank you very much for stopping by and wish you continued success. Well, thank you very much. Now, are you going to give me the money or are you send a check to me? <laughs> Myself this past Christmas, the nicest present I received was a gift certificate good at any hospital for a lobotomy. <laughs> Rather thoughtful. Now, now, if I may digress momentarily from the mainstream of this evening's symposium, I'd like to sing a song which is completely pointless, but is something which I picked up during my career as a scientist. This may prove useful to some of you someday, perhaps in a somewhat bizarre set of circumstances. It's simply the names of the chemical elements set to a possibly recognizable tune. Arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismuth, chromium, lithium, beryllium, and barium. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I knew you would. 
I hope you're all taking notes because there's going to be a short quiz next period. There's holmium and helium and hafnium and erbium and phosphorus and francium and fluorine and terbium and manganese and mercalium and lithium and magnesium, dysprosium and scandium and cerium and cesium and lead, praseodymium and platinum and plutonium, palladium, promethium, potassium, polonium and tantalum, genesium, titanium, tellurium and cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and arc, and kryptonium, radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here.